Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, the Canadian gun grabbers never let a crisis go to waste, even in the face of, you know, actual evidence. And 2020, the year the American political left pretends the last four years never happened. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Welcome to The Andrew Lawton Show, Canada's most irreverent talk show here on Monday, November 9th, 2020, and coming up on exactly one week since the American election began, although despite what the media has said, might not necessarily have ended. We'll talk a a little bit about that later on in the show, but truly thanks to all of you for tuning in. I want to turn to a story that took place in Toronto over the weekend that has revealed once again the true colors of those in government who are not interested in fact or science or evidence when issuing their proclamations about any number of issues, but in this context on guns. You may know that in Toronto on Saturday, a 12-year-old was shot, caught up as a bystander in a daylight shooting in North York. And the 12-year-old boy is in critical condition. Three others are injured. This was basically just about being stuck between two people that were in a gunfight, or more than two it could have been. I, I don't actually know the precise number. And this is, again, something that is, is tragic. I don't want to say it could happen to anyone, but it, it was nothing to do with the people who were actually injured in this. And as could be expected, government officials have come out, like Mayor John Tory, to say that it's a, an absolute tragedy, it's infuriating and unacceptable, and even though I know where John Tory stands on the gun issue, I don't think his statement was uh, particularly offensive. But then Catherine McKenna decides to just take it a little bit further. The uh, minister in Trudeau's government, the former environment minister, now infrastructure minister, says guns kill people. Enough is enough. Now, this is, I mean, technically true. Guns are capable of killing people, just as cars are, just as skis are, just as vending machines are. There's no denying that guns are physically capable of killing people. But what she's doing is trying to take from this story as though it's a piece of evidence that justifies what the liberals have been doing to go after law-abiding gun owners for the last few months in particular, most notably in the wake of the Nova Scotia massacre, wherein the Trudeau government decided they were going to use it as justification to ban a huge number of guns, more than 1,500 types of firearms, despite the fact that not a single legal gun was used by the Nova Scotia killer. So when Catherine McKenna comes and says guns kill people enough is enough, what she's actually saying is that we need to go further to ban guns, to restrict guns, neglecting to acknowledge that in pretty much every single example of inner city gang-related gun crime, which is what this looks like in Toronto, the firearms used were not at all legally acquired. They were illegally owned illegally acquired, and gun policy from idealistic politicians would absolutely do nothing. Absolutely nothing. Perhaps less than nothing because it would give people a false sense of security. But even if we're just rounding to zero here, we'd do nothing to prevent these actions, these episodes from taking place. And if I sound like a broken record in this, I'm not sorry because there are clearly still people that aren't getting the message. 
And I don't know how you can. You either have to be completely inept or willfully ignorant. And I, I think it actually goes into the willful ignorance category with most of the Trudeau ministers. In particular, I would say Bill Blair, a former police officer. He knows very well that the origins of guns used in crime are not coming from law-abiding gun owners like myself. They're not coming from uh, the gun stores in Toronto. They are coming from smugglers, people that are smuggling them across the border. And whatever you may think of American gun policy, and you may think that firearms are way too easily accessible in the U.S., that's fine. You can have that debate. Americans can have that debate. The debate might take on a different tone depending on what happens with the ongoing election counting process. But we cannot control the American firearms market. We can control our border. And it's interesting that for all that politicians in Canada, in the left, want to talk about the need to get illegal guns off the street, they rarely talk about border security, which is actually the cornerstone of keeping illegal firearms off the streets of Canada. You have to secure the border. And right now, if some uh, migrant who wants to cross at Roxham Road has a suitcase full of guns, I, I would say it's probably a pretty good uh, likelihood that those guns are going to end up in Canada because uh, the government is not actually interested in securing the border. So when they talk about guns kill people, enough is enough, they aren't actually serious about it. They aren't actually serious about going after, I would say, the low-hanging fruit of keeping illegal guns out of Canada and, and then having a, a greater discussion and one that's more intellectually honest about how we navigate our firearms terrain from there. And I will say it again and again, even if I sound like a broken record, legal gun owners are not the problem. Law-abiding gun owners are not the problem. And there's something inherently uh, revealing about the name, law-abiding gun owners. They are law-abiding, so the second you see a gun used in some brazen daylight shooting in North York or elsewhere in Toronto, you already know that you're not talking about someone who's law-abiding. And I know that sometimes they like to say, well, all gun owners are law-abiding until they aren't, but that really mistakes the fact that gun owners are vetted continuously in Canada. In fact, people don't realize this. And, and when I did my firearms licensing, I was not told this directly except for by my firearms instructors. The government didn't tell me this. But as a firearms owner in Canada, you're actually vetted and screened daily by the government. They're running background checks continuously on gun owners daily. So if something changes in my status, they're going to get uh, me flagged right there and say, well, hang on, why do you have firearms still? And this is the reality of it. You actually surrender some of your rights when you acquire legal firearms in Canada. One of them is that uh, the government could show up one day, police could show up at my house and inspect. So that is a warrantless search of my home that could happen just because I own firearms. So let's not mistake ourselves or delude ourselves into thinking that law-abiding gun owners are not actually the safest demographic group in Canada, given the fact that continuous and ongoing vetting is already taking place. Because you can't take aim at guns without taking aim at gun owners, if you're talking about ways the government could, with the stroke of a pen, uh, somehow legislate away gun crime. It just doesn't work that way. And one thing that I also have to point out here that there's still a, a little bit of uncertainty about 
is the nature of municipal gun bans. Now, as it stands, municipalities have no real uh, say in how they can deal with firearms. One of the things that the liberals wanted to do in their sweeping overhaul of gun laws a couple of months ago was make it so municipalities could basically do an end run around their provinces and ban guns themselves, or, or specifically handguns. And we know that John Tory would love this. We know that Vancouver would love this. Ontario government, Alberta government, they're not too keen on this. The Saskatchewan government actually passed a provincial law this year that would ban municipal governments from putting any restriction on firearms. So I'm glad that the Saskatchewan government is standing up for its citizens and its municipalities and the off chance that, you know, some gun control happy mayor of Moose Jaw or whatever decided. And I don't mean to pick on the mayor of Moose Jaw. I actually have no idea who the mayor of Moose Jaw is, and I, I think I'm okay with that. Although Moose Jaw is a lovely place. I have been there, believe it or not. But uh, Saskatchewan standing up for its citizens. Doug Ford doesn't seem to want the federal government to start needling around in municipalities in Ontario, but we know that John Tory will. But it's still not entirely clear what a municipal handgun ban would look like. And there's an article in the Globe and Mail that touches on this because the municipal handgun idea was reinforced and reiterated in the speech from the throne a few weeks back by uh, Julie Payette on behalf of Justin Trudeau. John Tory had wanted a municipal handgun ban, but has since uh, decided he wants a national ban instead. But if he doesn't get that, is he going to go for the municipal one? Probably. The Vancouver mayor said he intends to pursue a local handgun ban once the option is available. But again, it's not quite clear how it's going to take hold. So a spokesperson for Public Safety Minister Bill Blair said it will involve Ottawa working with governments to allow them to restrict the storage and use of restricted weapons within their jurisdictions. So it doesn't necessarily sound like they will be able to ban someone in a city from owning a handgun if that person has followed the laws and has the license and all that. But they could say that you can't store it, you can't take it anywhere, and perhaps that you couldn't even go to a range because you are not allowed to have a range that uh, will allow the shooting of restricted guns. That's the big concern here. So people that have a legal gun, that have licensed themselves, that have gone through the processes, are vetted daily, that the government could say, okay, no handguns can be taken to a gun range in City X. That's the fear, because now all of a sudden this thing that you've paid a lot of money on, this membership to a gun range that you've paid a lot of money for, you don't actually have the ability to use either. And again, I'm speculating a little bit here because I have to. For all that the government has gone over and over about what it's doing on this, it has not actually given much in the way of real, actionable information about what it plans to do. Is it going to be where you have to shut down all the gun stores in a particular city's limits? Is it going to be where no one can own a gun there? Is it going to be where you just have to basically brick your gun and not be able to use it and treat it almost like the AR-15 restrictions where you basically have this thing, but you can no longer take it anywhere, do anything with it or anything like that? That's the big fear here. But but no matter what, this is not going after the people that are causing the problems. 
And I know I've extrapolated a lot from what was otherwise a, a pretty small tweet from a federal cabinet minister, but that one tweet, that singular tweet, reinforces and I think uh, certainly illuminates what has been the prevailing attitude of Justin Trudeau's government, which is uh, to hell with the facts, to hell with the evidence. We hate guns and we hate the people that shoot guns and we're going to go after them. And, you know, I think that Charlton Heston line comes to mind here. So as uh, we set out this year to defeat the divisive forces that would take freedom away, I want to say those fighting words for everyone within the sound of my voice to hear and to heed, and especially for you, Mr. Gore. <laughs> From my cold, dead hands. You know, we may not have a Second Amendment in Canada, but certainly we have people, I hope, in large enough numbers to stand up and, and say that this is not acceptable. And when I was in Ottawa a few weeks back, I think it was in August or September, whenever it was, for the gun rally, the integrity march put on by the Canadian Coalition for Firearm Rights, I think everyone was shocked at just how many people were willing to, in some cases, travel across the country to march for gun rights in Ottawa. And I mean, it was upwards of, I think, 4,000 people. Some estimates said even more, but I, I try to avoid getting into the politics of, of guessing crowd size. But sufficiently, thousands of people, all because the government has antagonized this group. And it's not about a rebellion. It's not about a revolt. It's not about uh, anything like that. It's simply about saying that there are enough numbers here to sway an election if gun owners... And I don't just mean your your hardcore gun activists, but even people that have, you know, grandpa's old uh, revolver or whatever, there are enough gun owners to tip the scales if they start realizing it. And, and this is a, a big issue that I've seen in the gun community where you get people that aren't actually conservatives, which is fine. I mean, gun ownership and uh, sports shooting, these are, are things that have a, a wide appeal. But you get people that are not conservatives and as such, they don't really realize that there's only one party that is standing up for gun owners right now, and that is the conservatives. And look, I would love to see the liberals stand up for gun rights. The NDP has, in many cases, been better than the liberals on gun rights because the NDP has a presence in some of the northern indigenous communities where they're very pro-gun. And the liberals decided they were going to just uh, get around that by drawing an exemption around indigenous people. Whereas I'm like, OK, well, if we can realize that indigenous Canadians can safely and legally own guns, then surely we realize that no one else uh, should be excluded on the grounds of, of race, which just seems stupid. But here we are. So the Justin Trudeau government, the Justin Trudeau approach is that uh, we don't like guns. We don't like the people who own guns, which is why those people need to stand up and say no. We'll be back in a moment with more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. I know I'm going to get absolutely attacked by a lot of people on this if I, I use the term President-elect Joe Biden because I know the media can't call elections and I know there have been uh, various questions raised that are completely legitimate and worthwhile questions to be explored about the integrity of the voting process. But when I talk about a Biden win in this particular case, you'll understand, I hope, that I'm talking about the narrative right now, that Joe Biden has won the election and even with the belief of that. And this is where I, I think it's important. Even with the belief by the left that Joe Biden has won the election and it's been a resounding victory and Trump has been vanquished and all of that, they are still acting pretty darn unhinged 
about some of the aspects of American politics right now, which is why this is important to point out. Now, not that I look to Hollywood celebrities as being spiritual or moral leaders in any way whatsoever, but sometimes they're a good kind of way of understanding what a lot of other people are, are thinking. John Cusack <laughs> said that uh, basically a third of Americans are Nazis. So, so this is his belief. He went on a Twitter rant referring to uh, Trump voters, and it was kind of a, a bit incoherent, as, as they are with a lot of... I mean, if you want incoherence, try to read a string of share tweets. But he says, it's just starting to hit the symbolic power of replacing a Nazi with a woman of color on the ticket is a massive historic repudiation of Trumpism. Uh, he goes on and on, lists a bunch of people that he doesn't like, like death cult pimp Pompeo, Nazi Miller, Clown Kushner, Rudy Giuliani, which that was actually kind of clever. I'll, I'll give you Rudy Giuliani. But he says Trump's going to spend the rest of his life on jail. And then someone says that, uh, you know, this doesn't really square with Joe Biden's commitment to reconcile and heal. And then John Cusack said, if Republicans enable a Nazi, that makes them what an effing death cult, a cult with uh, three K's in the middle, uh, so as to cleverly indicate adherence to the KKK. So John Cusack thinks uh, basically that anyone who has voted for Trump is a Nazi. And to hammer that point home, he says 30% of country are Nazi, are enemies. Uh, so this is, again, not uh, necessarily the most solid map. And I actually like John Cusack in film. So I always try to uh, generally avoid the celebrity tweets, because I, if I enjoy their movies, I, I don't want to uh, realize that they're just complete morons, which I think a lot of them are, and that's the, the problem here. So I try to avoid this stuff, but when someone says 30% of Americans are Nazis, uh, devoid of any sense of knowledge, stats, facts, it's actually, John Cusack could do liberal gun control policy in Canada with this uh, level of commitment to the evidence. But this is kind of the attitude that we're starting to see now. And, and remember, the left is very good at moving goalposts. The left is tremendously good when they lose one battle to kind of pick up and immediately go to the next battle. And this is why conservatives are often, in fact, almost exclusively left playing catch up. And I want you to see how those goalposts have shifted in pursuit of what comes next after what uh, is believed to be a Joe Biden victory. So Joe Biden to the left wins. There's no legal challenge. There's nothing really there. Anything that Rudy Giuliani does in the parking lot of a landscaping store is really nothing. The election's over, they think. And not just think, they think it was a, an absolute uh, barn burner, whopper of an election, complete repudiation of Donald Trump. But they're starting to shift the narrative a little bit. I'm just going to rhyme a couple of headlines off uh, for you here. The Washington Post, Trumpism is here to stay. Uh, another one from the Washington Post, Biden must put down the monster that is Trumpism. From The Guardian, Donald Trump has been defeated, but Trumpism could be here to stay. And from Canada's own Toronto star, Susan Delacorte writes, Donald Trump lost, but Trumpism is still thriving. Could it take hold in Canada too? And the thesis of Susan Delacorte's piece is that yes, it could, but that's another discussion here. The fact is, is that now it's not enough to just defeat Donald Trump. Everyone who believed in what Donald Trump believes has to be defeated. Donald Trump's belief system has to be purged from American political discourse. Any remnants of the Donald Trump presidency have to be purged from the American electorate, which is going to be very difficult when you look at the numbers. 
Remember that Donald Trump won more votes than he did in 2016, more votes than any losing presidential candidate in the history of politics in America. So even if you accept that Biden won, you also have to accept that there is a huge, huge, huge portion of Americans that were completely fine with Donald Trump. Now, we talked a little bit about this on the show last week. Were they voting for uh, the media caricature of Trump? No, they were voting for a guy that says he's going to get the economy back on track, a guy that has overseen economic gains, a guy that is actually paying attention to uh, the American Rust Belt and people in middle America that are typically ignored by the elites historically. So when people are voting for Trump, they're actually seeing in him an ally to some extent, and it could be on immigration, it could be on the economy, it could be on something entirely different. We don't necessarily know what drives each individual voter. But there is a voter base. There is a constituency for Donald Trump. And you know what? I actually thought, just from an analytical perspective, Joe Biden's speech on, I guess it would have been Saturday, his acceptance speech was actually completely fair. It was a, a speech that was unifying. He talked about all the right things. He hit the right notes. I thought it was a completely valid expression. But when you talk about reconciliation and healing and governing for all people one day, and the next day the left is saying, okay, we've got to squash every single burning ember of this person's beliefs in the country, that is not conducive. That is not conducive in the least to genuine reconciliation, to bringing the country together. And this part's going to be very difficult to reconcile, to use Joe Biden's word, because you've got the left that is basically right now committed to ensuring that Trump is never at all going to be heard from again. There was a Canadian academic, Steve Sademan, who had tweeted something about this on November 9th. He had said, we can debate how much bipartisanship Biden should try to achieve, but I'm glad I'm seeing academics start to mobilize to make sure that those complicit with Trumpism don't get cushy spots at Harvard or anywhere else. We might fail, but we need to bring shame back. And the rationale that he's going after there is what we've seen in, in some cases where people on university commissions are trying to say, hey, you know, we can't let anyone from the Trump administration be appointed uh, to this fellowship or that fellowship. And pretty soon that's going to extend to corporate boards. You know, the, the moment that Jared Kushner is appointed to some board, everyone's going to try to boycott that company. It used to be that everyone would understand that if you had served in a White House, if you had been a cabinet secretary, if you had been a president, if you had been a senior advisor to a president, that you had something to offer, that you, by doing that job, would learn something that could be of benefit in your life post-politics. And it's also always been known that once you are post-partisan, once you've left office, you can actually sit down and break bread with people of opposing parties with very little issue. This is why George Bush and Bill Clinton have appeared on panels together. It's why you see in the media people that are former White House aides that are uh, yucking it up with others because they all kind of get along when they realize they have this shared experience that has given them some form of illumination about the way the world works. And I, I'm kind of glamorizing political life, but I hope you'll indulge me here. But now we're basically saying that anyone who's been in Washington for the last four, four years is toxic. They're poison. They don't deserve to be heard. They don't deserve to work. They don't deserve to have any contribution to public life. This is a McCarthy-esque witch hunt for people who dared to stand up in service of their country for the last four years, irrespective, 
irrespective of whether you are a Trumpist or a fan of Trump or a Trump voter. I, the, the right never did this to Barack Obama. The right never said, oh, Barack Obama doesn't have the right to, you know, take on Netflix projects. And anyone who did would have been a bit crazy. Some people might have said, I don't want to watch Netflix because it's Obama involved. But no one said, no, 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 we're going to boycott Netflix and Netflix shouldn't be uh, taking on Barack Obama. No one has ever said from the right that I've seen anyway, in any sort of a serious way, that uh, these people that worked in the Obama White House shouldn't be allowed to contribute to whatever sort of discourse. But now this is the way we're seeing it unfold, where if you were involved with Trump, if you believed what Trump believed, you no longer have a place in the America that they are creating. And this is tremendously dangerous and not at all compatible with this idea of reconciliation and healing the nation. They are not content to just win. They are not content to just win. They want to completely obliterate any evidence that the last four years of America ever existed. And the reason they want to do that is because they got the last four years wrong. And this goes back to the themes we talked about on the show on Friday about how the media has never understood and still doesn't understand the Trump voter. The last four years proved that the media doesn't have the influence it thought it did, that the left doesn't have the political influence that, that it thought it did, that the rules of society uh, set out by the left and the media don't necessarily apply to the real world. And this is something that most Americans have kind of started to see more frequently now that the media narrative doesn't necessarily align with reality. And this threatens what the media has always proclaimed is the status quo. And that's why I think everyone's trying to just basically take it so that if you look at an American history book in 30 years, you're going to just like, you know, be flipping through the pages and you're going to be like, oh yeah, yeah, Barack Obama, I remember that first black president, 2008, 2016, and it's and you flip and it's like 2020 and you're like, well, hang on, I, I think we're missing something here. And it's like there was a scene from Family Guy that this reminds me of uh, in uh, the German telling of German history. You'll find more on Germany's contribution to the arts in the pamphlets we have provided. Yeah, uh, about your pamphlet, uh, I'm, I'm not seeing anything about German history between 1939 and 1945. There's just a big gap. Everyone was on vacation. On your left is Munich's first city hall, erected in 15... Wait, 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 what, what are you talking about? Germany invaded Poland in 1939, and... We were invited! Punch was served! Check was Poland! Well, you, you can't just ignore those years. Thomas Mann fled to America because of Nazism's stranglehold on Germany. Nope, nope, he left to manage a Dairy Queen. A Dairy Queen? That's preposterous. I will hear no more insinuations about the German people! <laughs> now, now again, lest anyone think, I'm not comparing Trump to Hitler. There's been enough of that for the last four years. I, I'm just uh, kind of making the point that people are going to try to basically say that nothing happened in America. The last four years never happened. It was all a bad dream, and I don't think it's going to fly when the chips are on the table. We've got to wrap things up. When we return in a few days, we'll have more irreverence here on Canada's most irreverent talk show. My thanks to all of you for tuning in. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.